0: A very warm welcome to the Word Life Podcast. Thank you for joining us. Today we're going back to 2015 and a track by Nick Tucker with the wonderful title 12 Things God Can't Do and Why They Should Help You Sleep at Night. These talks show us the character of our God and help us see what that looks like for us in our lives. I hope you find they expand your mind and warm your heart. Here's Nick. Good morning. Hello. Uh, thank you very much, and a very good morning to you, sir. Uh, it's, it's the last day of term, and and so the headmaster said we can wear our own clothes. Um, now if any of you have brought in games, can you uh, just hold on to them until the end, and, and be careful not to get the expensive ones broken. That's what always happens, isn't it? So, um, It's the last day, and, and uh, we are coming to the end of our 12 things that God can't do, and um, I'm excited about what we've got this morning ahead of us. Uh, Let's pray as we begin. Gracious God and Father, we thank you that you are wonderful beyond our imagining. We thank you that in you are delights and that you are our truest delight. We thank you that the eternity that we look forward to with you is not long enough to sing every praise that you are due, nor to know every true thing there is about you, nor to be able to delight in you as fully as you can be delighted in. Thank you that we will never come to the end of you, but there will always be greater depths and greater joy to enter into. What a wonderful God you are. And we pray this morning, as we think about your goodness, that you will teach us to love you better, to know you better, and to be better equipped to live for you in this, your world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, so turn with me, if you would, to Genesis chapter 18, and I will read to you from verse 22. So the men turned from there and went towards Sodom, but Abraham still stood before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? Is it not necessary for God to do good how could he treat the righteous and the wicked the same? This is a God who is just. This is a God who must do right. If righteousness is to exist, then God must do right, surely, says Abraham, as he prays. And God says, yes, you're right. I won't sweep away the righteous. That's the shorthand. That's not a direct quote, by the way, if you're looking for it. But... What does it mean for God to do right? What does it mean for God to be good or to do good? Uh, Alongside the the time that the Old Testament uh, history was happening and the Old Testament was being written, the Greek philosophers were asking similar questions. Uh, Plato, in his dialogue of Euthyphro, poses it like this. Uh, He puts it in terms of the gods, but uh, better in terms of God. Does God will the good because it is good? Or is it good because God wills it? In other words, is there a standard of goodness outside of God to which he must measure up? Is there somewhere a kind of independent sort of list of rules or something that God has to conform himself to The problem that anyone who has read Exodus chapter 3 verse 14 would instantly have with that, well, I'm going to leave that to you to discuss. The alternative, because there is a problem with that, so the alternative is uh, to there being a, a standard of goodness outside of God, is that somehow things are good just because God says so. That it's not that it's inherently or intrinsically right or wrong, but it's just whatever God wills is right or wrong, because God is the ultimate power. So, worried by the sort of um, suggestion that God might not be completely free, that God might not uh, be completely self-determining, medieval uh, theologians like William of Ockham a brilliant philosopher who gave us uh, the the idea of Occam's razor. You can go and look that up later on, but it's a philosophical uh, tool that lasts till today. William of Occam and others (coughs) argued that whatever God commands is good simply because he commands it, Uh, and therefore, if God were to command senseless cruelty, that would be a good thing. If there was suddenly a rule given by God that said, torturing kittens. Is now my will, that would be the definition of goodness. So that actually there's no such thing as good considered on its own. It's simply whatever God says. Why not discuss this this dilemma for a moment, just in your in in, in your little now dreaded twos and threes? Okay, why not just turn to the person next to you and and say which of these is right? Is it that God will's the good because it's good, there's some standard of goodness outside himself, or is it that um, it's just good because God says so? Which of those, and he could say anything. He could say, yeah, um, the, uh, you know, taking dandelions to bed with you at night is good, that's my will now, Uh, and not taking dandelions to bed with you at night is, uh, you know, it could be absurd or it could be wicked, but it doesn't matter because it's good because God says so. Okay, which of those is accurately represents what we find uh, revealed to us in scripture about goodness and God. Does the question make sense? Uh, Good. Uh, um, In that case, (laughs) I I don't care what you actually think. (laughs) (laughs) Look, someone in the third row nodded. And they they acted as your federal head. Okay? So, sorry, little covenant theology joke. Um, So, uh, go to it. Talk about it. Well, you're either <clears throat> you're either having a very animated conversation about what's for lunch, or you quite got into that one, which is nice. Um, I don't know which way you jumped. Is God good because He wills the good? The answer to that question is yes. Because He conforms to the standard of goodness, God is good. The problem with that, though is if you make that standard external to God, if you say there is, there is somehow a kind of law of good and evil in the universe that is beyond God and, and separate from him and, and distinct from him, that you, you do run into all the problems that William of Ockham was worrying about. You challenge God's aseity, the idea that he is from himself, the idea that he is self-defining. You take away his freedom. You make him less than God. So if you grasp that And first horn of the dilemma, the idea that God is good because he wills the good, he conforms to the standard of goodness. The danger is that you lose God completely. He stops being God. He stops being that independent, uncreated creator. But if you say things are good simply because God wills them and he could will anything, as William of Ockham does, you end up with the most terrifying being Imaginable. Here is a God who has power beyond anything you could imagine. He makes the the force of a nuclear explosion look like, you know, the drop of rain, one drop of rain into the ocean. Uh, But his power is totally unconstrained. He could choose one minute to send it this way, but another minute to send it that way. Today, not torturing kittens is good. Tomorrow, torturing kittens is good. Can you imagine living in a universe like that? That is just horrifying, isn't it? That's the kind of universe the ancient pagans used to live in. You don't know what the gods want today. You don't know which god is really in control. Uh, And so there's no moral certainty. It is terrifying to live in a world like that, isn't it? We live in a world like that that is governed like that where people think like that there's no moral certainty it is simply the will of the majority and if that will can be manipulated if that will can be shifted and changed as we see it can then what is acceptable what is good today is evil tomorrow do you see that in the way that Christianity 40 years ago was if not if not loved, was respected. Christian morals were considered to be the sort of height of morality, were considered to be a, a, a good thing even if we can't all live up to them. But now, many of the things that Christians cherish, are, the very cherishing of those things is considered to be evil. It's considered to be not just like kind of take it or leave it, but outright bad. It's scary to live in a world like that, isn't it? If you're not prepared to just shift and and twist and turn uh, with the prevailing opinions. It's the great danger, it's the great worry, it's the great risk of democracy. If the majority defines what is right, then what happens when the majority says, we want to send this group to these gas chambers over here? Terrifying to live in a world like that, isn't it? With no moral center, with no moral certainty. So which of these two things is true? The, f- the truth is they're both true. The dilemma is not a real dilemma. Because the definition of goodness, the measure of goodness, the yardstick, if you like, by which you measure goodness, is God's own character. Is God's will unconstrained? No. He is constrained by his own goodness, by his own character. So that Abraham can stand in the presence of the living God and say, you will do right, won't you? I can hold you to yourself and trust that you will do what is consistent with your character. God's will is not unconstrained. The universe does have a moral center. There is definitive, objective right and wrong. I'm almost tempted to ask you guys to cheer a bit louder. <laughs> so, there is objective morality because it is based on an unchanging standard that is, the character of God Himself. Now, the amazing thing that means for you is that you trust, you believe in a God who can no more cease to be good than He can cease to be. Remember, everything's part of the definition, and God is good. Remember 1 John one four, God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. What? I mean, it's easy to take that for granted, isn't it? But actually, what a comfort that is. What an amazing thing that is. Say, so, because he is the measure, because there is nothing external to him that says what is good or, or not good, but because he himself is goodness... He doesn't have goodness from outside, but he is goodness. One of the things that means is that he cannot be tempted by evil. By definition. Because evil is a denial of who he is. Evil is a a, a rejection of his goodness. Because there is no goodness other than his goodness. It all comes from him. So, James chapter 1 and verse 13, let no one, when he is tempted, say, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. And it's that desire that gives birth to sin. But what is James saying there to, to these people who are under temptation, who are under fierce, he, he even says fiery trial? What is he saying? Well, we talked about it yesterday, didn't we? What kind of God can help you in temptation? The God who is totally untouched by it himself. What kind of God can help you in trouble? The one that is absolutely trustworthy, that will never turn away from his goodness, even for a moment. You cannot be tempted by evil and therefore has nothing to do with evil. He won't won't tempt you. He doesn't want to lead you astray. He's not testing you to see whether or not he can get you to budge. He loves you. And so James goes on. Every good and perfect gift. In fact, let's look at verse 16. First, do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow of change. So God doesn't change, and particularly, James is saying, he doesn't change in terms of his goodness, in terms of his character. The God who has spoken will not deviate. He will not fail you. He will not stop loving you. He will not stop wanting to give you the very best. Now a key example of what it means for God to be unable to do evil or be even tempted by evil is God's... uh, relationship with the truth and we're told repeatedly that God cannot lie we'll come to a couple of the uh, verses in a moment but we're told repeatedly that God cannot lie now initially we think that's that's probably a good thing um, because we always know that he's telling us the truth but just think about our own personal relationship with lies or our cultural relationship with lies for a moment Because it is a very good thing that God cannot lie, but that presumably means that lies are a bad thing. Now, a few years ago, there was a not particularly good film uh, starring Ricky Gervais called uh, The Invention of Lying. And um, in this film, there's this kind of strange sort of dystopia, kind of unpleasant world in which no one can lie. Everyone just tells the truth automatically. And it means it's very difficult to deal with the difficult things in life. And uh, along comes this guy who... It's basically, you know, an account of the evolution based of humanity as distinct from the animals, as far as I can see. So I'll just swallow that cough sweet now and everything will be better. Um, Humanity as distinct from the animals, but also the the evolution of religion. Uh, And basically the idea is, all these people are always telling the truth. uh, And it gets very awkward and embarrassing... Uh, and then there's this guy whose mother is dying. Uh, and he develops, you know, the evolutionary advantage of being able to lie to her. And says, don't worry, mum. there's a God up there and um, you're going to a better place. Which, of course, is hugely comforting to her. Uh, and so um, th- there's this kind of... <laughs> You know, cleverly woven together, well, not particularly cleverly, but this woven together idea, both that actually it's much better to be able to, to lie than not lie, on the one hand, uh, but also uh, that the whole, the, the very fact of that explains how religion has evolved. You know, it's a convenient lie to make our lives more comfortable, uh, to make our lives more bearable and more livable. Uh, and so that lies are actually seen to be a good thing. Because they, and, you know, That that is, you know, there are those sorts of questions that do the rounds, aren't they? You know, if um, you know, if the knock comes at the door from the Gestapo, are you hiding Jews? Do you tell the truth? You know, it's not an uncomplicated question. But God doesn't lie. God cannot lie. Why is that so important in Scripture? Come back to Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2. Remember in Genesis 1, what is all of reality based on? It's based on the work of God's word. It is based on the power of God's word and the truthfulness of God's word. So um, the the word itself and its fulfillment match exactly. God says, let there be light and there is light. And so it goes on through the whole of Genesis 1 and into Genesis 2 until you come to chapter 2 and verses 16 and 17. The Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. God's word has shown itself to be truthful and powerful and good and generous so that the, land, uh, it, the garden is full of precious stones, it's full of gold, it's well watered by these rivers and um, the trees... What kind of God do you believe in? Because the trees are pleasing to the eye and good for food. This is not a sort of um, utilitarian concrete nightmare, is it? This is a place where there is beauty and where there is beauty that goes together with what you need with food. It's a place of great generosity. This isn't simply subsistence. This is life lived to the full. This is rich, multi-layered enjoyment of the creation. That's what we're being told. And so when the serpent comes along, chapter 3 And verse 1. And says, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? He is questioning the goodness, the generosity of God. And then he goes on. Verse 4. The serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. You'll be like God, knowing good and evil. You will not surely die. There it is. He's come out. He said it. He's questioned God's generosity and goodness in verse 1. But now... He realizes that, you know, the moment to strike has come. So the full on lie comes out. You will not die. God is not telling you the truth. Why is God not telling you the truth? Because he is not good, says the serpent. He knows that if you eat this, you will get what he's got. If he's frightened of you, He doesn't love you. He wants to keep the really good stuff from you. He wants to keep it to himself because he is crooked and deceitful. And so at the very start, at the very start of the human problem is a lie. And it is a lie that says that God is a liar. Do you see that? And it is a deadly lie. It is as certain that the serpent murders Adam and Eve with a lie as if he had taken a knife and done it. The lie is a tool of violence and murder in Genesis 3. It is the means of robbing God of his glory and killing the creatures made in his image. That is our introduction to lying. That is the invention of lying. And so the narrative of the invention of lying simply carries on that lie. That lies are a good thing and that God is a lie. In Scripture, lies are fundamentally something that set themselves up against God, against the truth, against reality as it really is. And so, when you get to John 8, let's all turn to John 8 together. This is what you find. I'm going to start reading at verse 31, just to give us a run-up. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We're offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. (laughs) Really? Okay. Uh, How is it that you say... You will become free. Jesus answered them Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever, the son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know you are the offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father. And you do what you have heard from your father. That you say, Abraham is our father, and so God is our father. And Jesus begins to question their paternity. This is what you see why the idea of sonship is so important in John? Who is your father? Now, they will now question Jesus' parentage, showing that the sort of virgin birth did indeed raise a few eyebrows. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you'd be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. They said to him, well, at least we know who our father is. They said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God." Can you see how the irony is piling up and up and up here? Jesus, the true son of the father, they're saying, God is our father. No one knows who your father is. Jesus says, no, you're doing what your father does. You're doing what your father does. And the question in the back of your mind has got to be, who then is their father? If it's not Abraham, if it's not God, who is their father? Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me for i came from god and i am here i came not of my own accord but he sent me why do you not understand what i say it is because you cannot bear to hear my word you are of your father the devil and your will is to do your father's desires he was a murderer from the beginning Jesus says to them, You are of your father, the devil. When he lies, he speaks his native language, as the NIV puts it. And you see it. Jesus puts, Murder. You want to kill me? Why do you want to kill me? Because you want to kill the truth. Your father, the one you're following, the one whose family likeness you bear, is Satan. A murderer from the beginning, a liar by nature. Jesus' account of the human condition is this, that everyone caught up in sin is wedded to, enslaved to a lie. And so when the truth of God is revealed, what do we do? What does all humanity do? Since the Tower of Babel, what is the most united moment of humanity before Pentecost? It's at the cross, where Herod, The Jewish leaders who hate Herod, Pilate and Herod hate each other. They all come together to crucify Jesus. Why? Because naturally we're enslaved to the lie. When the truth is presented to us, we want to destroy it. There is hatred of God in being committed to the lie. So... It's important that we see that that sin isn't simply a turning away from God, but is a turning to something as well. It is a relationship with the lie. It is a relationship with idolatry. So in Romans one twenty-five, how is idolatry described? It is wedding yourself to a lie. It is worshiping a lie. So that falsehood is at the heart of the problem of the human condition. Sin, falsehood, murder. They're almost synonymous here in John 8, aren't they? The devil is the father of lies. So the exhortation to tell the truth and shame the devil is right, isn't it? Tell the truth. God always tells the truth. Jesus is his son. The father confirms it, says Jesus. And this is where salvation lies. So that in becoming a Christian, it's not simply kind of escaping out from under the burden of, your, of the penalty of your sins, but it is coming into a relationship with the truth. It is being rescued from slavery to a lie into the freedom that the truth brings. So when Jesus says the truth will set you free, he's not talking about investigative journalism. That's so often the way we, you know, the way it's that, that particular saying of Jesus is portrayed, at least in our culture and in our media, you know, the idea that, you know, the truth sets you free. You know, true knowledge about the people who rule over you, that, that will, Jesus is saying that it's much bigger than that. The truth will set you free. You can come into a relationship with the truth. You can ditch the lie. So God's truthfulness is at the heart of the gospel. God's truthfulness, then, is at the heart of what it means to be a Christian, too. And we'll come back to this. But it's vital that we don't just see Christian, the Christian gospel... And the Christian life as being just escape from something. Remember Exodus 19? I brought you out of Egypt and I carried you on eagle's wings to myself. And Jesus says, I've brought you out of slavery to a lie and into a relationship with the truth. So that actually. The Christian life is a fuller, deeper, more multi-leveled thing than many of us appreciate. Because it is the beginning of that relationship. Becoming a Christian is the beginning of that right relationship with the truth and having everything set right. If God's word is at the heart of the fabric of reality, committing yourself to a lie commits you to seeing the world in a distorted way, commits you to living in a distorted and broken way. In fact, The act of rebelling against the creator, rebelling against his word, is an act which unpicks the very fabric of creation and of reality. And you see that in the broken world that is around us, don't you? In the Lord Jesus, things are set back the right way up. I mentioned a couple of days ago Athanasius of Alexandria and his explanation of why it is that God had to become a man so that he could suffer. Well, Athanasius says there are two reasons why Jesus needs to be who he is and the way he is. Two reasons why you need the son of God to become truly a man to rescue you. He says he needs to be truly a man so he can suffer the penalty of Genesis 2.17. But he needs to be truly the son of God because only the creator can recreate. Sin breaks, destroys, unpicks. Only the creator himself can put that right. Could you have a more wonderful saviour than the one who is truly human and truly divine fully and perfectly so that he really can bear your sins and really can die for you and at the same time really can fix you and make you whole and put your life back the right way up? Could you? so God's relationship with the truth is at the heart of the gospel but it also protects us in the gospel so turn to Titus chapter 1 you there? Titus chapter 1 verse 1 Paul a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life which God who never lies promised before the ages began and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching which I've been entrusted by the command of God our saviour. Now Paul says I'm writing to chosen people Writing to the Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, he says, Chosen before the dawn of time, loved before the dawn of time. And here he says, Promised before the dawn of time, before the ages began, God promised this salvation to you. And he never lies. Well, if the God whose word upholds the being of the universe as you read in Hebrews chapter one. The God whose word shapes and brings into being reality and he never lies has made a promise to you. Could you be more secure? Can anything separate you from the love of God? Nay. No? So Hebrews 6, verse 17. It's in the vicinity, isn't it? It's nearby. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it's impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Remember, the Lord has sworn he will not change his mind, Psalm 110. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The writer of the Hebrews says, This truth, the fact that God cannot lie about this, the promises that he has made about Jesus and about the kind of priesthood that Jesus has mean that you have an anchor. You may be tossed about by storms in life. And some of us this morning, you're going through that. Even now. But you have an anchor behind the curtain in the holiest place. That's the fixed fact about your identity. That's where you belong. That's where you will go. That's where you are. That's where you will always be. A sure, solid anchor for the soul. Isn't it just great that God is the way he is? Isn't it? Yes. (laughs) It's good. We're, we're, you know. So I, I recognize that, you know, it's... It's early and it's the last day of term. But do you see how the God who can't is so much better than the God who can? The God who can do anything, the God who can lie, the God who can change. Actually, the things God can't do are so important, aren't they? He cannot lie, He cannot be tempted. That is seriously good. Now, what are the consequences of all of this for us? Well, the first thing is, we are the most secure, we should be the most secure people in existence. The creator of the universe has made promises to us and has said, I can't lie to you. And not in the way that a used car salesman says, I can't lie to you, which means I can lie to you. (laughs) God says, "I, I can't lie. I've sworn by myself about you. We're hugely secure. But it has consequences for us in terms of how we view the Christian life as well, in terms of how we view ourselves. When I uh, was um, involved in um, running uh, sort of summer youth camps for kids. I say kids, you know, I don't suppose I'm allowed to say that anymore. I they 14 to 18-year-olds, probably sort of young adults or something. Um, Apologies to any young adults in the audience. I'd just love to think I was down with the kids. It doesn't sound so good to say I'm down with the young adults, does it? (laughs) Um, And before we had a talk on how to become a Christian, you know, come on come to Jesus kind of thing we would always have a talk on the cost of being a disciple and it began to become clear to me that for lots of people we think about the cost of being a disciple in terms of living righteously you know what do you have to give up to be a Christian you know is it a great loss not to be out on Friday night getting tanked up to the eyeballs so that you can't stand or speak. Is that a great loss? You know, I worked for, for a number of years with UCCF and in student ministry. You know, this is the time when, you know, you, you, you have freedom, you've got your own room, your parents aren't, aren't, aren't looking over you. And so, you know, lots of people experience kind of great excitement about the sort of sexual freedom that, that they have at university. And you, you see the Christian students Thinking, I'm really missing out. If I want to go God's way, I'm really going to miss out on the best. But if God is the way that we've been talking about this morning, in what sense now Jesus does talk about cost of discipleship. He says, "You know, you'll suffer. But is not sinning suffering? If God really is good, down to the core, if it's part of the definition of who he is, if it's at the heart of reality, if the truth and goodness go together in this way, is a, is a holy life a cost? It can't be, can it? Actually, when you think about it, thinking about sin in those sorts of terms as something you're missing out on, takes you right back to Genesis 3, doesn't it? It takes you right back to the serpent who says, God doesn't want you to have that good thing. He wants to keep that back from you. Think about what it means to be a human being. We, we often think about sin as, you know, you, you fail, you say, well, I'm only human. You know, to, to, to fail is human, to forgive is divine, right? What does it mean to be a human being? Well, in Genesis 1 and 2, to be a human being is to be made in the image of God, to be made to be like God. And along comes Jesus, and he is the image of the invisible God. What does it mean to be a human being? What is the most human way to live? What is, what is the perfection of your humanity? is to be perfect and sinless and holy, isn't it? That's what you were made to be like, so that Paul can repeat it in his letters talk about how you've got a new self created to be like your creator. Your holiness, your walking in obedience with God, is your freedom, is your blessing. What do you think the new heavens and the new Earth are going to be like? Do you think they will be the worse for being empty of sin? No. Do you think your life will be emptier and less colourful? It was that film Colourville, wasn't there, where everything was in black and white and the sinners were the people who started to colour things in and make life vibrant and wonderful. It's a lie from the pit of hell. Colour and beauty and delight are things that are only found in the truth and in the true source of beauty and nourishment and goodness. So that it is a benefit of the Christian life to be godly. To be free, to know the truth and to live by the truth is a benefit of the gospel. It is your honour and your privilege to obey your maker. That is fullness of life. So that when the hymn writer says, solid joys and lasting treasures, none but Zion's children know. I was going to take you, let me just give you a couple of verses so you can look at in your spare time. Um, Ephesians 2 and verse 10. You, I mean, it's, it's tempting since they just go and read the whole book of Ephesians. But uh, Ephesians 2, verse 10 is, is a key verse where God's workmanship created to do good works. Uh, or 1 John 3, verses 1 to 10. But as we were praying um, as a speaker team this morning, Hugh Palmer took us to uh, 1 Peter 2, verses 24 and 25. I was very struck by these verses. So, will you come with me there? Peter 2, verses 24 and 25, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. What does the cross achieve for you? Pays every single one of your sins off in full, yes. But also frees you to live for righteousness to live God's way in God's world. That is the achievement of the cross. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. And that healing's both those things, isn't it? It's both having the penalty of sin taken away, but eventually it's also having the presence of sin taken away and the power of sin taken away. That's what healing looks like. That's what it looks like to be made whole. To be put right. So in your Christian life, up to the day that you die, or the Lord Jesus returns, isn't it exciting to know that you can go on and experience more of the fullness of what God wants for you in life? Not in the sense that you become wealthy necessarily, or healthy but that you become wise because wisdom is knowing how to live God's way in God's world. Wisdom is knowing how to live right. Growing in love and knowledge of your creator and so that love overflowing to others and that love is the fulfilling of the law, says Jesus. So what does the... What, what, what does uh, Peter say then in verse 25? You were straying like sheep. Wandering away from the truth, you pierce yourself with many griefs, 1 Timothy 6. You were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. The great news of the gospel isn't just forgiveness, is it? But it is reconciliation with your maker who made you for himself. He's the one who watches over you, who cares for you, your shepherd and your overseer. Do you know, I think for some of us, the Christian life has begun to get dull, has begun to feel like a drudge. I bet some of you are feeling that this morning. You're saying, yes, Nick, that's how I feel today. Or at least that's how I felt at the beginning of the week. Maybe it doesn't feel like that when you're at Word Alive, but you're worried that next Monday morning it's going to feel like that. Oh, but it can't be, can it? It is life with the shepherd and overseer of your souls. It is being made whole in Jesus Christ. It is painful and slow and difficult, but it is glorious. And if you're young, I'm tempted to say, if you're young, put your hand up. But that would just be cruel. Thanks for putting your hand up, but you don't need to. I can see that you're young. If you're young, can I encourage you to find some older Christian friends? And I mean much older. Because there is nothing, in my experience, there is nothing so glorious as an old saint. Someone who's been living as a Christian... 50, 60, 70, 80 years, and who loves the Lord more now than they ever did before. It is the most beautiful thing. Go get to know them, see what you could become in the grace of the Lord Jesus. It's inspiring. Holy lives are a benefit and not a cost. We are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to walk in. Now, as we think about God's goodness and his holiness, that takes us back again to the God who you know, cannot bear to look on evil. The God who is so great, so wonderful, so holy in his nature and in his character that we cannot look on him or see him. what that has to inspire in us, what that must inspire in us is humility regarding ourselves for two reasons. One, you can only know the invisible God if he reveals himself to you. You don't have the capacity to get to him on your own. Just by his nature, he's invisible. You can't find him. But he makes himself findable. Ultimately, he does so in Jesus. But he speaks into his world and reveals himself and says, you can know me Even more wonderfully, you can be in the family. We could not know. By nature, we could not know without revelation. But because of our sin, we could not know without mercy. We could not be reconciled to him. We could not live with him. We could not have the life we were made for, but for God's mercy. So Christian life, Christian knowledge is all completely a gift. It can only be a gift. You've got nothing to bring to the table. And so we should be humbled. We should recognize every day it's only by grace that I can even know my need of God, let alone know Him. And yet, in His generosity, He gives us both. But also, great awe and worship. The fact that God is good to his core, the fact that God can no more cease to be good than he can cease to be, means that for us, we encounter a God of searing holiness and majesty, who yet loved us enough that he sent his son to die on a cross and because everything's in the definition of God, because God is fully perfect in, in every possible good thing, that holiness and that love coincide completely. Uh, and so in the gospel, holiness and love coincide completely. And it's tempting, and, and this is something that Martin Luther picked out brilliantly in his, uh, in his radical book, Uh, near the start of the Reformation called The Freedom of a Christian. Uh, And um, Tim Keller particularly recently has been been kind of, uh, you you know, restating this argument very strongly and very powerfully. Is that it's only a God like this and it's only a gospel like this that can really inspire you to love God for God, that can really transform you. If you think that God's holiness isn't that important to him, if you think that he can set it aside, he, he can look on evil and he can live with a certain amount of wrongdoing just as long as you don't get too out of hand, you know, full-on antinomianism, um, rejection of the law, the sense that there are no moral absolutes. It doesn't inspire much love of God, does it? Because, you know, how much does God need to... If God doesn't care about evil, how much does God need to love you in order to welcome you? Well, not very much. It doesn't cost him anything. And so people who say, well, I major on the love of God, I'm not really interested in his wrath and his holiness. You don't, they don't really believe in the love of God at all because it doesn't cost him anything. Whereas people who say, well, I focus on you know, the, the rules and, and keeping the rules. And, and, and keeping the rules is the way that I get to be in God's presence. Keeping the rules is the way that I get to be uh, in good standing with God. Well, people like that don't rate God's holiness very highly, do they? Because to be frank, if we're honest with ourselves, if I can keep the rules in a way that's acceptable to God, God's standards are low. I mean really low. So if if you're tempted to think that the way you stand with God is on the basis of your obedience and you doing good, your God's not very good. He's not very holy. He doesn't have very high standards. So you don't have all. Diminishes holiness, lose love diminish his loveliness the stunning kindness of the gospel that overcomes so great a barrier as our sin lose that love and you lose lose that grace and you lose the holiness of God but together how can I not love the one who has loved me so And how can I not be struck down with awe and wonder and praise at a God whose holiness is such that the only way he could have me was at the cost of his son? How can I not be dissolved into love and worship and awe by a God like that who acts like that? And so in Psalm 36, the psalmist talking about God's goodness and about how you see the world. says, in your light, we see light. When you see the beauty of God's holiness, because it is beautiful, you see the ugliness of sin for what it is. So if you really want to hate your sin, if you really want to repent, don't look at yourself. Don't look at your sin. Primarily look at God and his goodness and his beauty. Because in his light you see light. In him, when, you, when, you, when you're overawed with him, then, then you'll see your sin for what it is. And you will hate it. So Isaiah 6, when he experiences God's presence, it reveals him to himself as well, doesn't it? It Re- reveals Isaiah to himself. He says, I'm a man of unclean lips. God cannot be tempted by evil. He can no more cease to be Good than he can cease to be. But now think about Jesus. So um, back in your groups, for the last time this week, so say goodbye to each other. Um, Matthew 4, verses 1 to 11. Just quickly read through. Does it ring any bells? Remind you of anything else you encounter in scripture? Okay, so I don't know how far you got. I'm sorry, I didn't give you very long. But um, I'm struck by a number of things. One is you have the tempter coming, quoting scripture, twisting scripture. We've encountered a scripture-quoting servant before, serpent before, haven't we? He is trying to get the son to question whether he's really the son he's raising questions about God's goodness it's around food I wonder if you've ever thought how important food is in scripture (laughs) but it's around food who feeds me who provides for me who cares for me tell these things to become bread eat this fruit And at least the, the second century writer Irenaeus would have us think that it's around a tree as well. Because when the devil takes Jesus up to a very high mountain and shows him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory and says, I'll give you all of them if you will just bow down and worship me, that really that's about the cross. Because how is it that Jesus... Wins his kingdom back from Satan. How is it that Jesus draws all peoples to himself, draws the world to himself? It is when he is lifted up. Is it as his crucifixion? That is the moment of his triumph. That is the moment of his enthronement as king. That is the moment when all the kingdoms of the world are his again. And Satan says, I'll give you all of that, and you don't even have to go to the cross. Certainly, More fully in the New Testament, it is the cross that is Jesus' ultimate temptation. The point at which he is tempted to avoid the hard road of obedience to God in favor of the easy road, the shortcut. And the writer to the Hebrews says, For the joy set before him, he chose the cross. It's around a tree. The first temptation and the temptation of Christ are around a tree. With Adam's, the temptation is easy, don't eat. Don't eat, don't die. For Jesus, the temptation is hard. Drink this cup of suffering and die. And your followers for the rest of their mortal days will remember it by eating. Symbolically eating your body. Matthew 4 shows us that Jesus is tempted at every point that Adam is tempted. And out there in the wilderness, temptations around bread and kingdoms and echo the, the temptations and the failings of Israel in the wilderness too. God found a way not only to die but to be tempted, to experience the things that we are uh, tempted by and to be, uh, to be victorious in them instead of failing. And he did that for us. So this is the, the Martin Luther illustration I've given you from his Freedom of a Christian, which there are reasons that some old books continue to be influential for 500, 1,000, 2,000 years uh, because they are great and this is one of them. Uh, If you have not read Martin Luther's On the Freedom of a Christian, uh, you are the poorer for it, and I recommend it to you. And the great thing about it is you can get it for free on the internet. So, where's the downside? I won't read this excerpt to you, that would be tedious for you and would take too long. But um, basically, what Luther says is that uh, becoming a Christian, having faith in Jesus, is like getting married. Uh, and when you get married, everything that belongs to you belongs to your spouse and everything that belongs to them belongs to you. So when I got married, all my worldly goods become uh, property, joint property with my wife and, 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 and the other way. And Luther says, your failures, your sin, Jesus takes them to himself. And because you're married to him by faith, they're really his and he really can die for them. It's not a legal fiction in that sense, it's a legal reality. United to Jesus Christ by faith, your sins belong to him and he can die for them. But it's not one way. Because Jesus' is righteousness, Jesus' is perfectly holy life of obedience, Jesus' success in overcoming temptation is yours. Uh, and so that by faith, as your sin now belongs to him and he can die for it, His righteousness belongs to you and you can live for it. And so whenever God thinks about you, he looks on his son and his perfect life of obedience lived and says yes and delights in you so that the Old Testament prophecies of God rejoicing over his people with singing are true of you that when he thinks about you as Tim Keller puts it, he sings a song to himself in his heart. Jesus' successes in facing temptation don't only take him to the cross, but earn for us a reward beyond our imagining. But also, Jesus, because he suffered when he was tempted, Hebrews 2.18, we're onto the last two pages of the handout now. Because he himself has suffered when tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. And Hebrews 4, astonishingly, he is able to sympathize with our weakness. Who in every spe- respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. He knows what it's like for you. And yet he's the example of the perfect one who is without sin. He is able to give you all the things that someone who, who succeeded where you failed can give you. But he understands That, I think, is the closest you will find in the Bible to the idea that God learned something. He learned obedience through suffering. He learned what it is like to be tempted. So that God actually knows what it's like to be you. And he still loves you. And so our great security as Christians lies in God and not in ourselves. So we've looked at these verses in 1 Timothy chapter 2 before, haven't we? God cannot deny himself. And it struck me that the first question of the Heidelberg Catechism captures this marvelously. What is your only comfort in life and death? The beginning of the answer is that I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and death, to my faithful saviour, Jesus Christ. If we are faithless, He remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. So there you have it. Twelve things God can't do. He can't learn, he can't be surprised, he can't change his mind, he can't be seen, he can't look on evil, he can't change, he can't suffer, he can't be lonely, he can't die, he can't be tempted, he cannot lie, he cannot deny himself. Those things give you a trustworthy, beautiful, wonderful God that you can put your trust in completely, And so sleep at night. And yet in Jesus, God has taken on so many of those things that he could not do and been able to do them for the sole purpose of having a relationship with you, his people. If God was not already sufficiently to be praised because of who he is, as if that wasn't the case, Is he not even more greatly to be praised because of what he has done in sending his son into our broken world? Let's finish our time together by praying. Father God, we can only scratch the surface of of who you are. We cannot begin to fathom what you have done for us. But to the extent that we know you, to the extent that we understand what you've done for us, we are over- overwhelmed and we rejoice and we give you thanks and we give you our lives in worship and we pray that you will teach us to see the world the way that you see it. We pray that you will continue to set us free by the truth so that we can have the lives you want us to have, lives that they, they be filled now perhaps with suffering and pain, can yet be filled with the sweet fruits of godliness knowing that we will enjoy your goodness forever in your kingdom, the new heavens and the new earth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This talk was recorded at Word Alive 2015. Word Alive is here to serve the church in reaching the world. Our desire is to resource individuals and churches and empower them in their mission to local communities in the wider world. For further information and to hear more talks from this and previous events, please visit our website at wordaliveevent.org.